You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hello and welcome to episode 173 of the City of Man podcast. Uh, my name is Coyle Neal. I'm an associate professor of political science, Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Uh, joining me today on the show to talk about the Middle Ages uh, more Vikings is Jordan Poss, instructor of history at Piedmont Technical College in Greenwood, South Carolina. Jordan, how are you doing this morning? Good. Uh, excited to talk Vikings after teaching medical technology all morning. <laughs> Teaching medical technology. I might have follow-up questions when we're done about that. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. It, it's for a technical. Oh, gotcha. Like uh, 100 level humanities course. So fun, but takes that out of me. And this is fun and restores me. Fair so. enough. <laughs> uh, also joining us today is uh, David Grubbs, humanities teacher at the, well, my notes just say the Christian Classical High School. Yeah. Um, so... The, the name of it is the the Westminster School at Oak Mountain. Do I do I need to bleep that out? Or are you going to get in trouble for? Here's the thing. I I've, I've never been clearly instructed as to whether or not I am to name my employer on the air. Michael has been explicitly told not to, but I've not. If so I need to delete that, let me know, and I will edit it out. Um, and if you don't let me know, I probably won't because laziness is uh, my default setting. So. <laughs> Well, today we are talking about Vikings in the New World. Uh, I haven't decided exactly what I'm going to label this episode yet. Uh, maybe something like uh, Europeans colonizing part one or something like that. Uh, uh, we're, we're drawing on uh, two short little texts uh, that are uh, collected together in my version, just called the Vinland Sagas from Ping Penguin Classics. Uh, can uh, someone give us a quick reminder of what a saga is? What, what are these texts that we're reading? Hey, uh, David, before the show, you reminded us you're the lit guy, so go for the go for the genre explanation. Um, yeah, Saga is a, a Scandinavian, a Norse catch-all term for a prose narrative. Uh, it can include uh, everything from uh, a multi-generational account of family feuds to uh, the adventures of outlaws in the wilds of Iceland or Norway to uh, the histories of kings historical and semi-historical. Um, there are translations of Arthurian romances that are called sagas in those sources. Uh, translations of um, accounts of the Trojan War that in those uh, that in those texts are called sagas. So uh, the, the word saga just means it's a long prose story but it doesn't necessarily tell you the nature of the, the 
the content itself. It could be historical, could be legendary, it could be longer or shorter, it could be battles, it could just be disputes over boundaries. But there's almost certainly going to be a fight in there somewhere. And maybe some people who don't stay dead. Right. Or, or are dead but are still talking for reasons that are somewhat unclear. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the, the two we're reading, one I think is just called the Greenland Saga and one is called Eric Saga. Uh, one is the, the saga of the family of Eric the Red, even though they call it the Greenland Saga. Uh, and one is the story of Gudrid. Gudrid, am I saying her name right? Gudrid? Uh, who is uh, yeah. Yeah. part of Eric the Red's extended family, uh, but it gives us a little more detail about her and, and her background. Uh, and of course, they're they're both interesting to us both because they're they're kind of fun stories, but they detail the uh, the first uh, uh, the first European exploration of the New World that we have a record of uh, in the Viking attempt to settle and colonize uh, northeastern Canada. Um, anything else we need to know about sagas? Otherwise, we'll we'll jump into these. I'll point out since since David took the lit side of it, I'll I'll do the history side. Um, Historiographically, uh, what, what's interesting to me about sagas is that the word saga is cognate with the English word say. Uh, I think that's important. These are oral histories, essentially. Uh, the genesis of many of them is that they are handed down in some form orally for a couple of hundred years. The, the time frame is you know, the subject of academic controversy, that kind of thing. Uh, but they're handed down orally from the actual time period when they took place and eventually written down in, you know, kind of a late Old Norse or early Old Icelandic uh, language, um, depending, again, on what, what saga you're talking about. So they're not – I occasionally – I'll talk about this later maybe, but I occasionally assign an excerpt of Eric the Red Saga to some of my students. And it's a little of a challenge because I call it a primary source, but it's not precisely. Uh, it is It is from the time period being described, but it has been – transmitted kind of like a game of telephone you know for a couple of hundred years before actually being written down so it kind of straddles uh our definitions of primary and secondary sources in, in I, I think very very interesting ways and um you know maybe as we talk about the specifics of each saga because they because they overlap right they, they describe some of the same events but in sometimes dramatically different ways uh i, I think that's um an interesting insight into some of the problems of the transmission of these stories um, anything else? Otherwise, we should we should jump into the narrative, which uh, I find as as someone who is not a medievalist, I, I think this is really interesting. Uh, they they both begin the the uh, the European uh, encounter with the New World begins in both cases uh, in both sagas uh, with bloodshed and murder. Uh, Eric the Red uh, murders someone in Norway and is driven out of the country. Uh, moves to Iceland, kills someone else, and is driven out of the country. So we, we have a guy who is so awful, he is exiled from two Viking countries. Uh, <laughs> and decides he's going to settle in some islands uh, that are kind of between Iceland and Greenland, and I, I don't remember what they're called, but they're these little spits of rock that have some, a handful of Viking farm, uh, farmsteads on them, and uh, misses the islands and lands in Greenland. Uh, both both sagas are very clear. He is naming this Greenland to try to make people move there. Uh, that's a, that's a point they go out of their way to uh, to, to emphasize. Uh, and then uh, I guess apparently settles down. He stops murdering people anyway, at least in the uh, in the text. Uh, and uh, 
plants the the first colony. Um, and that's it's not the end of Eric in the story. He's always sort of there in the background, uh, at least in the beginning of both of them. But do we need to say anything else about Eric the Red? He's kind of the grand old man. Like I mean, he's sort of at the same time the origin, the origin myth of all of this, and the elder statesman, if you want to put it in grossly. I mean, I was I was sort of reminded of founding of Rome narratives where you have like Romulus and Remus or these criminals who are outcasts or, or Israel, you know, David and his mighty men being driven out of Israel and into having to live with the uh, uh, live with the Philistines. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, Jacob right. Uh, same same kind of thing here with with Eric resonating somewhat with that uh, being a, a person who is driven out from society otherwise. Uh, they don't. They don't give us much detail, so I don't. I don't know that I have more than that. I, I guess narratively speaking, Eric is central because he's how the Norse get to Greenland in the first place. Because that's going to be that. That is going to be the kind of. Um, I keep thinking in all these modern terms, forward right. operating base. <laughs> it's going to be the you know the FOB for them to you know explore further west and south. Yeah, I I didn't look up. Uh, and, and maybe we'll come back to this. I didn't look up whether the Greenland colony stuck. We know that the New World colony, uh, North American colony, does not. Um, I don't know if the Greenland one, Greenland one hangs around the way the one in Iceland does, uh, or if it dies off at some point. Uh, I just, I don't know. I believe uh, it refers to several, you know, there's the eastern settlement, which is like more at the southern tip of Greenland, and the western settlement, which is further up the coast, you know, between Canada and Greenland. Uh, I... I'm trying to dis- determine this here. I believe some of them do hang on. Um, they hang on into the late Middle Ages anyway. The the you know the mini Ice Age of the the 14th century and the Black Death have a lot to do with like their decline. I don't just doing a very cursory sure. research. I'm not sure they were 100% abandoned, but uh, Bratahlith, which they refer to multiple times as the Western settlement. Uh, they lived there a good long time and then gave up on it in the late Middle Ages. Well, and, and Greenland is still part of Denmark, uh, right. so uh, in, yeah. in one sense it sticks. Yeah, so maybe the original settlements didn't last, but there was almost like uh, Virginia, where right. Jamestown doesn't last, but eventually Williamsburg gets established. Right. Um, maybe it, maybe it's some kind of dynamic yeah. like that, but I've, I've not boned up on Greenland the way I should have at some point in the last I think they've got at least enough of a foothold in Greenland to last into that early modern era when the power is sort of getting batted back and forth between Norway and Denmark so that that the claim to that chunk of land by Denmark still is is, uh, maybe a relic to to that particular period in Scandinavian history. Mm-hmm. I don't know I don't know how much of it is continuous settlement, but it's at least an awareness of that of that land that can conti- that can conti- continue to be a kind of viable and important political claim. Mm-hmm. Important enough that the Danish claim to Iceland was a problem in World War II. Um, yes. I mean the the British moved to take over Iceland when the Danes were defeated by the Nazis and eventually the you know when the United States got involved the US Marine Corps actually sent a detachment there um, and that's how I, I I'm not again I'm not 100% up on you know all the particulars of you know if you want to think of it as like Danish decolonization of Iceland but mm-hmm. that's when they became independent yeah, yeah. again <laughs> yep. 
Right. Uh, yeah, the only people who have, if I remember rightly, the only people who have surnames in Iceland are those families that are the remainders of the Danish gentry who had mm-hmm. surnames. And, and it's frowned upon to have to have that uh, that that surname in Iceland mm-hmm. um, instead of the you know Thorfinnsson or you know whatever picking it up the, the patronymic. Well, so so Eric. Um, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead, David. Oh yeah, yeah I was going to say something else about Eric. Um, we do, it, I don't think the sagas say much about the circumstances of the Norwegian manslaughter, the Norwegian killings. No. But the killing that is in Iceland um, is a pretty typical saga. Um, looks like a land dispute. It begins with the actions of thralls or servants having conflict. Some deaths result from that. And then, and then it escalates into fights between landowners in the case of Eric and a representative of the landowner and then that escalation goes to uh, a thing a a local assembly um, where uh, it's determined that uh, Eric is the one who is in the wrong and so he's the one who has to leave so so just kind of keeping in mind that Iceland doesn't have a king Iceland doesn't have a a legal executive. What it is is a community of freeholders who can band together to decide this person we vote him off the island because <laughs> he's he's no longer a good neighborhood. So they have they have I don't know it's like a it's like a neighborhood watch with legal powers or um, something a little bit less like an HOA and more like a neighborhood watch maybe I don't know. <laughs> But, but but yeah. So when we say uh, Eric's a criminal, it's it's in that sense, not in that kind of statutory, you know, the king, you know, the king's going to throw him in prison or something like that. But rather, um, he, he's quarrelsome enough, and his and his fights with him escalate to bloodshed often enough that the the neighbors vote him out of the neighborhood. Doesn't mean that people don't have any kind of dealings with him later. I mean, he ends up becoming very important and prominent later. You just don't want to be his neighbor. Well, from uh, uh, from from there, uh, he he founds this this settlement in Greenland. Uh, another another Viking named Bjarni, and I'm probably butchering that too. Uh, decides that he is going to move to Greenland. Uh, the text points out that he brings a Christian missionary with him. Uh, does I don't remember if it says whether he's a Christian, but he's at least facilitating missions. Uh, and on his way to Greenland, he gets lost uh, and uh, spots uh, some kind of new land uh, before he uh, finds his way to Greenland uh, and then eventually back to Norway, uh, where he tells the king of Norway about this, this new land that he's seen and is immediately uh, made fun of for not having the curiosity to explore it. Uh, you know what? What kind of Viking is this guy? You didn't even try to plunder anybody. Yeah, well, and and as a, as you often do with people whose competence you've just questioned, uh, he gets promoted into the bureaucracy, uh, and uh, kind of wanders out of our story. Spends the rest the of his Bjarni life. principle. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an odd part of the saga. I'm like, everyone's making fun of this guy, and then like, well, I guess we'll we'll make him a minister of some kind. Um, yeah. 
and and he's out of the story from that point on. Uh, where where uh, news of this new land gets to Eric's son Leaf, uh, who leads an expedition, uh, buys Bjarni's ship, uh, leads an expedition to the New World. Uh, in, in both stories, they spend a lot of time trying to convince Eric to go with them. Uh, and I think, is it is it he falls off a horse on his way to the ship yeah. uh, and, and gets injured and says, I'm old anyway and don't really want to go. Uh, so despite much, much cajoling from his children, uh, Eric eventually gets injured and decides not to go. Uh, and Leaf sets off to the New World. Um, any anything I'm missing out of the the lead up to that? I think the uh, the the fact the fact that there's a Christian missionary involved, um, they don't dwell on it in great detail. But the fact that this is a transitional period where you've got the conversion mm-hmm. of the society does play a role. Uh, there's at least there's at least one very specific like kind of antagonistic religious confrontation in Eric the Red Saga where you've got I think it's Thor Hall who's belongs to the old ways right and explicitly calls out the christians for you know thor taking better care of him than jesus does of them uh then it kind of then of course it kind of turns on him uh but that that you know even if we didn't have any other kind of markers of when this is taking place that would land us in like the 990s 980s uh because you know without at the year approximately a thousand the all thing in iceland will actually vote to convert um, and that's as a result of some of the efforts of missionaries going that far. Here we're getting them going even further, you know, just kind of sort of traveling with the current of Norse settlement out across the Atlantic. So by the end of the uh, by the end of both of these sagas, it, it, the impression you get is of the conversion having taken hold, and um, you know that kind of multi generational process of the sanctification of a society beginning. Right. Although I do think it's one of the things that jumped out at me is how well they live together. Uh, the, the Christians and the pagans yeah. tend to get along. Um, I don't know if that was, was typical of all Norsemen or if that's just the ones living way out on the frontiers. Uh, because, I mean, Iceland and Greenland are about as far as you're going to get from the centers of, of Viking power. So maybe there's just a necessity of there there aren't enough people around to fight or the climate is such you have to work together or... I don't know. Uh, I just there there, no one was even even the uh, the incident with was it was it Thorstein uh, whoever the, the the pagan was, it was Thor Hall I Thor think. Hall uh, whichever one of those guys it was one of the Thor guys yeah he was kind of grumpy about it but he went off he went off on his own right he didn't try to drive mm-hmm. Christians out or anything like that he he just kind of yeah. wandered off himself. Um, well, Leif, uh, Leif founds this settlement uh, in uh, some, somewhere in what is now the United States or Canada, uh, builds, builds some houses, uh, they, they winter uh, and explore uh, with sort of strict instructions to stay within a day's walk of the camp. Uh, those, those instructions are, are quickly violated by their, their token German member of the expedition. Um, <laughs> you got to watch out for us. Yeah. Uh, so this, this he's guy, a southerner and a German. So there, there's my cameo. <laughs> uh, I, for, I forget what his name is, but he uh, he wanders off farther than he's supposed to, uh, and comes back with uh, this giant bunch of, of grapes. Uh, and and again, I was reminded of you know the Israelites spying out Canaan, right? There's that that imagery there of this new world that's that's very lush and fertile. Uh, uh, and uh, they they then name the place Vinland because of this uh, this this big cluster of grapes. Um, and then, then they go home. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, 
kind of an anticlimax to the the exploration, uh, especially as people who who live in the new world. I want there to be more. I'm like, why why isn't there more to this story? But uh, any anything you guys want to bring up from Leaf's time in in, uh, in the new world? The uh, the grapes um, is this is this is always a really uh, the interesting and memorable part of it. Um, as I was kind of poking around. Uh, um, was uh, was reminded that uh, there's there are references to Wineland or Vinland that are are earlier than this. Um, uh, Adam of Bremen, a German source, references references it and set and attributes the name of Vinland to the presence of of wine of of grapes of, of grapevines. So Vineland, um, and uh, Tierker, the the German, says that he he recognizes them as grapes because where he's from in Germany. So I don't know, maybe it's sort of the must must be the a, a very the southern region, um, the Moselle Valley or something. Yeah, that he 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 knows what grapes look like, so he's able to identify them. And uh, I was watching a Jackson Crawford video on this. And uh, one of the things that he notes is that uh, there is, there is a grape that grows in a, as far north as uh, we believe that this is that that this was happening um, in uh, sort of eastern Canada called the fox grape, and that that's actually the the grape from which uh, the Concord grape was cultivated. Hmm. So. Um, I, yeah, I think it does. It does, like you said, Coil. It does recall the spies in Canaan saying, "Oh, look, the promised land. Look at the grapes." Um, but it also, uh, it also checks out as you know. Yeah, this is this is this is a thing that happened. Um, they they did have there was a wild grape there that is that is a part of that family, and uh, it is still cultivated and you can you can get a descendant of it at the grocery store yeah i i I mean obviously we we will talk more about this towards the end we we know where the settlement was because we found it uh but for a long time some of the speculation was well where could this have been how far north will grapes grow um which is a little surprising so grapes grow in montana uh, my my parents have a wild now wild grapes not the not the sort that you're going to uh, you know buy a bottle of wine made out of at the store but uh, wild grapes do grow in cold climates uh, it, it, uh, so I was a little surprised reading some of the uh, introductory material about how that that threw people because people tend to associate grapes with like the Mediterranean climate I'm like well, we had a we had a grapevine and we have nine months of winter so clearly they're they're not that fragile um, well I think have we have we talked about the medieval warm period. On no, an episode before. no, not yet. So it, that's also worth pointing out is that the one of the things that makes it difficult to know every specific place that they're referring to, it, it's kind of like identifying places from Exodus because nobody stays in any of those places. So the names just kind of drift off and then you have to work to try to, to, to fix them to a specific place. Uh, so maybe we can talk about the specific some of the speculation about locations later. But I mean, we've got Lonzo Meadows, that one settlement that has definitely been found. But the medieval warm period complicates this, uh, in addition to you know the erosion of shorelines and things like that, because uh, the medieval warm period at the time we're talking about, running up through say 1100, um, 
on average temperatures were you know in the northern hemisphere were several whole degrees warmer than they are even now um so the growing season was was much longer uh you could grow certain kinds of crops much further north than modern people would tend to associate them so in addition to you know it, it actually being possible to have these wild grapes they could have feasibly grown even further north than they do now and with a longer growing season and warmer temperatures may have even gotten you know larger and more abundant than we would tend to expect it, we're, we're not just looking back past you know a thousand years of cultural transition but also you know climatological stuff as well mm-hmm. yeah i mean it describes them loading like loading the boat with grapes mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah 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 you can't do that with like muscadines right I mean, <laughs> you know, these, the, the naturally occurring stuff you don't get that much of unless something is very climatically different uh, so, so Leaf goes back to Greenland, uh, leaves his his houses behind, uh, and then his brother returns to explore Vinland further. Uh, he uh, he goes to Leaf's village, uh, uh, which Leaf has several several siblings. I, I forget how many are, there are that go, but you know, several siblings that go kind of in turn, and all of them say, "Hey, Leaf, can we have your houses?" And every time he says, "No, those are mine," which <laughs> I don't I don't think he ever goes back. So there there's a part of me that's like, is he just this? Like he's he's got sort of the landlord mentality. Like you can't have them, but I'll rent them to you. Like I, I don't know if there's some Viking view of property here that it, maybe I'll want to go back someday. Uh, I'm I'm not entirely sure what's what's going on with that. Well, we've all had to tell toddlers to share toys. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> right. You know, I mean, you're yeah. not playing with it. <laughs> Isn't the existence of a home, a homestead, part of being able to make a land claim? Yeah. At least that's that's kind of been my impression in in reading some of the different sagas that that establishing a homestead in your name and and they're always naming it after themselves like mm-hmm. you know Thorfinn's dead um, is is to is claiming land and so much of the movement of characters whether they stay and whether they go is because in Iceland there's only so many places to live it's not very big same thing in Greenland there there are only so many places that you can be so when someone says hey can i have your homestead you're essentially you're you're not just saying can you live in my house but can i now claim your property so that in the event that you that you come back you don't have a claim um, it's kind and, of a zero sum game. Yes, if you have the land, I don't. <laughs> right, and they they clearly don't realize how big this place is. Yeah. <laughs> well, and they don't because they don't stay. Right. Well, there's there's several other incidents too that might enlighten that as well, where people come back to Greenland or or somewhere, and they go to stay with somebody, but you have to get like a formal invitation, and yeah. sometimes they might not even want your wife in the house. And so mm-hmm. you can come in, but she can't. Uh, these mm-hmm. kinds of things. They're that you know. This is a world that's heavily dependent on possession of the place that you're actually staying and on hospitality. Mm-hmm. And they're very, very aware. You know, they they are very alive to the potential abuses of that. You know, you give somebody an inch and they take a mile. That kind of thing. Well, uh, Leaf Leaf gives him the inch, I guess. Uh, he uh, he lets them stay in their their homestead. So, uh, Leaf's brother goes back to explore Vinland. Uh, he goes to Leaf's homestead, his village, uh, where they encounter uh, Native Americans uh, and proceed to kill them, uh, and then get attacked in turn. Uh, 
Leaf's uh, Leaf's brother is killed and and buried there, and the the crew uh, sails back in the spring again, loaded down with grapes. Uh, and others, I forget what else. It's not just grapes. They, I think they're taking like timber and some some of that stuff too. Um, and then yet another Eric's son, uh, Thorstein, I think, as this one goes, uh, but doesn't know the way and ends up in Western Greenland instead, uh, where he uh, he encounters uh, that that Western settlement that Jordan had mentioned. Uh, and there's there's some kind of family drama that goes on where the uh, you know have two people named Thorstein staying in the same house. One's the homeowner and one's the the one who got lost. Uh, and then there's some kind of drama between their wives, uh, and a, uh, a plague breaks out, kind of all at the same time. Uh, so our, our our story of the New World, and whenever this is in the 900s, uh, does involve the massacre of Native Americans and plague. Uh, it's a story that is repeated down the road. Um, you guys want to talk at all about what's going on with Thorstein and, and Gudrid, uh, the, the wife uh, who's involved here? I... I mean, it was an interesting story. I wasn't really clear why it was included. It, it seemed like it should have been. I mean, it is. It is sort of its own saga in the in the second one. I mean, that's that's the saga literature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not sure why it's included, but it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I mean, a lot of times it's because you know you you mentioned this earlier, Jordan, that these are um, these are stories that are based on oral sources, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you're talking about a, uh, a society that is heavily interested in genealogy, so that the common way for a saga to begin is there was this guy in Norway when this person was king, and these things happened to him, and he came to Iceland for these reasons, and he had this son, and he had this son, and he had this son, and now we're at the time of action. Right. So you get the sense that, almost like the book of Genesis, as if the narratives of the characters are a kind of ex- expanded genealogy. This person, then this person, then this person, and these are the things that happened in his life that still in some way affect us. So while, you know, if we were to, if we were going to sit down and write a novel, we may not have included these particular pieces because our notion of a narrative is centered on, you know, plot and action and resolving the problems but if you're if you are receiving the these family stories you know there's someone for whom this story is important and it's how did the, these particular ancestors live and die and where and also potentially what legal claims to which parts of the land or which possessions come out of this person's part of the story so i mean it might feel random to us, but it's 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 kind of a reminder of how these stories came to us and why they were important to the people who preserved them. They were family. Well, and and the point of contact with this, so uh, Gudrid, uh, the uh, uh, the daughter-in-law of Eric the Red, who had uh, gotten lost, who had been traveling with Thorstein on the way to Vinland. They got lost. They end up at this western settlement, and Thorstein dies. Uh, marries. Uh, uh, not another son of Eric the Red. Uh, she marries a guy named Thorfinn, and says, "Hey, there's this settlement in Vinland. You should take your ships and go there." So, and and he does and goes and stays, uh, yet again in uh, in Leif Erikson's house, um, where they encounter Native Americans again, uh, and and have kind of a, a brief skirmish uh, where they they fight each other, uh, and then the the Vikings uh, barricade themselves in their houses, and then the, the Native Americans can't get into the houses. Uh, so they they come to an agreement. They start trading with each other, uh, and the uh, the the one rule that Thorfinn sets for trading uh, is no trading weapons. 
so the uh, uh, no no weapons for Indians is is the rule here. Uh, the uh, the Native Americans then keep trying to steal them, uh, and things escalate uh, until they they come to blows again. And, and Thorfinn uh, does he get killed? I, I don't remember now. Um, eventually they they sail off, and I don't remember if he's there or not. Uh, no, he's not because he goes back. He's not killed. Uh, he he goes back. Uh, takes a, another trip to uh, to Vinland. Uh, this time with Eric the Red's daughter. So Eric's had what three three sons go to Vinland or try to go to Vinland, and and now he's got a daughter going. Uh, and someone in my used copy of this has taken a note uh, commenting on, on how terrible Freydis is. Uh, just what oh, an yeah. awful awful human being. <laughs> Depending on which saga you read. Well, yeah. Thing. yeah. It's like she's cons- like she is hard-edged in the saga of the Greenlanders and much more kind of grand and admirable in Eric the Red saga. So, again, questions. Sure. Uh, is, is it Freitas in the saga of Eric the Red who frightens off the Skraelings in one of the encounters? Yeah. Is it her? Okay. She, like, yeah. tears her shirt off and holds the sword over over her chest. And uh, the, the Skraelings, the Native Americans, are I assume confused at the very least, uh, but but scared and, and run away from whatever is going on there. Which, to be so, fair, I'd probably run away in a similar circumstance. I'd be like, I don't yeah, know what's so, happening here. I, you know, like I said, I've had students read an excerpt of this for a very long time, including that, because it's one of my favorite Viking stories mm-hmm. ever. Uh, and the funniest student response I got to that was that uh, the missing detail is she's like eight months pregnant. And she can't run away from the Native Americans, yeah. the Skraelingar. So she, you know, turns, takes a dead man's sword and turns to face them. Uh, and the funniest student response I ever got to that was that he said, "This is an acknowledgement by the Skraelingar that hormonal pregnant women are terrifying to pretty much everybody." <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, given that she turns out later to be like, well, in the other saga, she's ice she's cold. A psych- she's a psycho killer. I mean, yeah. she, she's she's probably got some crazy eyes going on. Um, <laughs> If yeah, if this if Freitas came at me, I would I would also run 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 head for the tree line. Um, she is scary. Yeah. yeah so in in the uh, the Greenland saga, uh, listener, if you haven't read this, she she goes with uh, with Thorfinn and uh, ra- she actually raises some partners to go with him. So this is a bigger expedition. Mm-hmm. Uh, gets permission to stay in Leif's house again because uh, she's his sister. Uh, they show up, and she immediately runs off these other partners, and they form a, se- a second camp. Uh, and then she convinces Thorfinn that these other partners have assaulted her uh, and insulted her. Uh, so he goes and kills them. Uh, and then, uh, does she does she brag about it? I forget how he finds out, but he finds out somehow. Um, she threatens to kill anybody who talks about it. Mm-hmm. But I, I do feel like she kind of wields it at some point. Um the two are running together in my head at this point. I'd have to refresh myself on. Yeah. It says, um, she went after the, so she, uh, she finagles her, her husband into killing these guys that she had previously invited and part and, and brought in as partners of the colony, but then finds inconvenient for whatever reason. Um, well, she, she wanted their ships full of stuff. I mean, that was yes. the, uh, she wanted the, the loot. Um, yeah, Although so she's she, not going to have the crew to take it back because she has them all killed, so I, I'm I'm not entirely sure what she was planning in the in the big, big picture here. Uh, I mean, well, she kills 
she she finagles her husband into killing them, and then they have uh, women with them, five women it says, who the men in Freitas's party they're like that they, they don't want to kill the women, so mm-hmm. Freitas says give me the axe and she takes care of it. Um, the next section says that. Uh, she bestowed liberal gifts upon all her companions, for she was anxious to screen her guilt. She now established herself at home, but her companions were not all so closed-mouthed concerning their misdeeds and wickedness that rumors did not get uh, abroad at last. Those reached her brother life, and he thought it a most shameful story, um, forced her partners in crime to confess, and then um, basically uh, says I have no heart to punish Freitas as I deserve but I predict of them that there will be little prosperity in store for their offspring so she's kind of presented as this cursed um, if if Leif managed to in some way um, uh, overcome or, or live beyond the pattern of life that his father Eric had set as the quarrelsome one the one who um, maybe isn't necessarily a, you know a stone cold assassin, but at the very least is not a man of peace. And a, you know you don't want him to be your neighbor because he's going to be quarrelsome. Freitas is kind of the the super Eric, and <laughs> Leif is the one who has managed to turn his back on that and be something else, be someone else. And he is, he's actually instrumental in, in bringing Christianity to Greenland. Right. There's also the old, you know, the old, um, that, that conflict there within, uh, the really ironclad laws of protecting your family and not betraying your family, but also having to avenge wrongdoing. And because there is no law enforcement, like we talked about, it is up to you to do that. So Leif is in a bind where in order to punish Freudus, uh, properly, he would have to either, you know, kill or exile her and he can't do that to his sister so he basically just yeah. has to say nothing good is going to come of this and wash his hands of it it's kind of a, a viking ethical dilemma he makes yeah. a promise not to do it again and yeah <laughs> <laughs> murder fewer of your neighbors please uh and then, so the the end. Of, this is all. I'm I'm leaning heavily on the Greenland saga. Uh, the the end. Uh, uh, Gudrid, uh, Thorfinn Thorfinn dies, uh, and Gudrid uh, becomes a nun in Iceland, uh, as as had been prophesied by, was it the the dead body of her husband or the dead body of the wife of the guy she was staying with in Western Greenland? One of those two. I think it was her husband. Yeah, so, yeah, so someone dies and then starts prophesying because you know, that's 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 how you roll in Greenland, I guess. Uh, uh, the prophecy is that she's going to become a nun in in Iceland, uh, and she does, and uh, her kids grow up and flourish, and that's sort of the end of the the saga. Um, anything you guys want to bring? Become, some of them become bishops, right? Her, uh, some of her descendants end up. Uh, Bishop Thorlock and Bishop Bjorn are named at the very end. So that also kind of gives you here's another reason why Goodred's story is preserved, why these things are preserved. Mm-hmm. Because part of the part of the prophecy of her of her first husband as he's dying is that she will go on to be connected to illustrious, reputable 
good happenings in people. And so if you're if you're Bishop Thorlock, <laughs> if you're Bishop Bjorn, this, you know, kind of illustrious great grandmother of prophecy is maybe part of your own story. And of the story of the salvation of the entire people. Right. Yes. Well, I uh, I relied heavily going over that on the Greenland saga. Do you guys want to bring anything in out of Eric's saga? Well, we've mentioned some of the sometimes dramatic differences in events and characterization uh, between the two. In broad outline, they match very, very closely, but yeah. sometimes they differ dramatically on the details. Um, I feel like... I. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, David, but I feel like Eric the Red Saga is a little bit more interested in the geography of Vinland. Uh, that's where you get, you know, much more detailed descriptions of what they're sailing past and what they're mm -hmm. seeing. Places. You know, there's, yeah, there's mountains here, and there's a river that flows from west to east here, and there's this mm -hmm. island, and there's, you know, Stromsfjord, like the bay with a really strong current, which mm -hmm. is enticing <laughs> to geographers, right? Is that the Bay of Fundy? Is that the strait between Labrador and, New and Newfoundland? We don't know. Uh, you know, it, there's Hop, which, uh, you know, the tidal pool, which some people have tried to identify as being as far south as New York, New York Harbor, which I think is a stretch because uh, it says that you can only get into it at high tide. And New York Harbor is a famously excellent harbor for large ships. But the so, the, so there's that aspect of it, right? There's a lot more attention paid to the actual landscape. Just just enough to be really enticing. And the, the edition of uh, the Vinland Sagas I have, uh, so there's two different ones from Penguin Classics. Uh, the newer one, uh, translated by Geneva Kuntz, has all the usual apparatus uh, with family trees, which can be very helpful, uh, descriptions of ships and things. But what is most interesting to me, because I'm kind of obsessed with maps, multiple maps of possible route of the voyages, depending on how you identify, you know, Heluland and Markland and Vinland and Stromsjord and places like that, as well as a chart. I don't, I mean, this'll, this, this'll only be good for people, you know, us on the actual Skype call. Uh, but the, let me see here, there are about 12 or 15 different place names named in the text and about as many proposed locations for them. Uh, some of them, there's, there's pretty good agreement that Heluland and Markland, for instance, are maybe Labrador or Baffin Island. Others, you get really wild speculation. Um, everything from, you know, the, the Appalachian Mountains as seen in Maine or the coast of Nova Scotia or the Bay of Fundy or the St. Lawrence estuary, things like that. Um, the other thing, uh, and I actually assign students to a chunk of Eric the Red Saga, uh, a little more attention to the Skralingar, including a physical description, uh, yes. and, as right. well as... Again, at at the remove that we're examining these things, what seem to be, you know, eyewitness details of the actual trade between the Norse and the Native Americans. Uh, and, I mean, that, that's just kind of a smell test, you know. Um, they're not described particularly outlandishly, uh, and there's enough random detail there that you have to say, why would anybody make that up? Um so, you know, they, they come into trade, uh, they arrive in skin boats, which seems about right to the level of technology available to the peoples in that part of the world at that time. Uh, and they're very, very interested in trading pelts for the kinds of things that the Norse have that they don't, right? Because they are, you know, 
red cloth. Yes, that, that, that is what they're most interested in. They've, they've seen animal skins their whole lives. They've never seen cloth, and they can't get enough of it, right? They're trading, you know, piles of animal pelts for little strips of it that they tie around their heads and things like that, which uh, based on later exchanges between Europeans and Native Americans rings true, right? And they don't, they don't have myths of buying Manhattan for a pile of beads, you know, to be, you know, that, that's not a trope that they're invoking. This is just, just the detail. This is the story as it's come down to them, which to me sounds authentic. Um, and, yeah. you know, at, from an educational standpoint, it's very interesting to me to assign this to students and see what they get out of it and what they also read into it. Uh -huh. Because the facts are presented very basically, like describing Yar want red cloth, so we cut it up and gave it to them. And it's interesting to me the conditioning of American high school students anyway, uh, how many of them read that as the Vikings deceiving and cheating them when, you know, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, not to invoke an anachronistic ideas of economics, but that's just how the free market works, right? It's, if it's valuable to you, you'll trade whatever you feel inclined to trade to get it. Um, so there's th that incident, you know, th th there's a great, a great deal more, detail in certain specific incidents it also gets a little bit more fantastical yeah. um you've got you know monopods <laughs> um, yes uh, i was about to say like following all of this detail about straylings yeah. we have um you know the guy who gets shot by uh right. you know a uniped and, I, and all i can think of is you know the duffel puds yes. from dawn treader <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, we well, got straylings and then just a little bit just a little bit further down the coast Right, and that's what's delightful and frustrating about the sagas, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and that and that's a good another good test case is that you know there's a man named Thorvald who's who's involved in all of this that we haven't mentioned yet. In the Greenland saga, he is, at, you know, hit in the chink, uh, chink of the armor by a Native American arrow, and he says, "Okay, I've been wounded. This is going to be the death of me. Stand by for news." <laughs> you know, he has to give his death speech. <laughs> Uh, in in the saga of Eric the Red, he is uh, shot in the guts by a, a uniped or a monopod, right, who's hopping along the river chasing them um, with, you know, and it, it kind of like the ghosts in various other Icelandic sagas. It's presented like this is what happened, right? Um, so it, it's uh, – and I was very interested looking at the notes to my edition again last night that there are reports of one-legged people – in that area of the world as late as Jacques Cartier when he first sailed into the St. Lawrence River. So who knows? Uh, it, it's just it's, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating stuff. Um, and again, the, the it's a very interesting exercise both in reading these great adventure stories that probably happened in some version of the way that they've come down to us, but also, again, the compare and contrast of the way they've come down to us. And, and we don't just think this was Freitas trying to cover up stuff. Like, oh, you know, it was a monopod that shot him. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, the, the little one-footed guy. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, any anything else specifically out of these? Otherwise, we'll, we'll have some kind of big questions that maybe none of us can answer. Uh, I, I, so we talked about, let's see, we talked about trade with the natives, uh, conflict with the natives. Um... Uh, I think there is the interesting question of why go there anyway. Um, what is what is the point of the the trips to Vinland? I mean, they they start by mocking Bjarni for not 
doing more exploration. Uh, and then they do a lot of exploration, and then they stop exploring, uh, which I, I guess we didn't mention. At the end of the Eric the Red saga, it does say they're, uh, the, the Native Americans are too, was it too ferocious or too many of them? I forget which. Uh, they basically say we're not going to be able to uh, to settle here, which I don't know my Viking history well enough to know if they ever say that about any other people. I mean, they attack they attack Constantinople, uh, they they you know take on the Mongols at one point. I, I mean, they're they're yeah. that is that's, that is not how I, what I think of that when I think of a Viking. But that's armies of them in places mm-hmm. that they that are yeah. if not reasonably close to home, there are at least routes along the way from here to there right you know and and whereas these are i think just like a couple of keels worth of settlers yeah. you know men and, men and women this isn't this isn't a viking a viking expedition proper it's not a shore raid it's an attempt to establish a settlement right and it's just leaf's family right yeah yeah they haven't got the logistics for a military campaign and they know it and the ability to be able to get back to um, where they're going to get support you know that yeah this is this isn't like a Viking raid to Ireland where Ireland is a known quantity how to get there is a known quantity getting back mm-hmm. is a known quantity um, you know I, I I think it makes sense that when they realize just how badly outnumbered they are and sure they've got axes and maybe some of them have chainmail, but it's not that much better that massive being massively outnumbered isn't going to um, isn't going to offset it. Mm-hmm. So I, mean, I, I think they make that the the right strategic call. Yeah. I mean, we, we like to say they're Vikings, but they're but we probably shouldn't imagine Vikings. You should probably imagine people on a covered wagon. It, you know, it's Pa and Laura, but with axes. Well, ex- yeah. except yeah. when they're not, though, right? I, I mean, they're, yeah. these, this is the people that invade and conquer northern Italy and yes. England yes. and uh, northern France, and uh, I don't, I don't, rem- I don't know if they ever actually take over Constantinople, but I know they, they give it a try a few times. Um, yeah. So, and and they can, do, we know they can do the colonization thing because they do it in Iceland. Uh, it's it's just interesting that those two. Viking activities don't seem to come together in the New World in a way yeah. that they, they could have, and in a way that they do Iceland, other places. Iceland didn't have inhabitants. Right. So that's, yeah, that's the colonization side of things. And then they've got the military side of things uh, in Europe. Uh, and they just, they don't, they don't do both in the New World, uh, one, uh, outside, past Iceland. Yeah. Well, one, one of the things I always emphasize when I teach the Vikings, like in Western Civ, is that they're greatest weapon and I'm, I realize I'm accidentally quoting Monty Python uh, their chief weapon is surprise <laughs> right. uh, that is the main thing that they have going for them is that thanks to the advantage of the longship they can show up whenever they want wherever they want and entire society is reorganized to try to keep people on watch for them uh, in Vinland they not only don't have the numbers you know this is not the great heathen army uh, it is. I, I think the biggest number we get wherever they supply numbers is like 140 people, uh, and the fact that when Freudus commits her murders, you know all the adults are killed, right? And there's five women. That's a that is a really tiny, like you know Mayflower level of people showing up. 
So they, they not only do they not have the numbers, but once they've settled down, they no longer have the element of surprise. In yes. fact, the Native Americans get the jump on them. Yeah, and they're once, the ones with the boat, with the fast boats. Right. And once you can deprive the Vikings of the element of surprise, they are either going to try to deal with you or back off. Uh, you know, Alfred the Great, you know, this is this is the tail end of his reign, is the reign of his son Edward. You know, pin the Vikings down until you get enough guys there to either get rid of them or force them to negotiate. Uh, and, it, I mean, interestingly, you know, so, something else that I emphasize is that where the Norse can, they prefer to do business. Yes. And so you you get both of those things, right, where, you know, you, they, they are in a foreign land, they don't see anybody, so they settle down. Then, oh, surprise, there's people here. They're pretty scary. Uh, you know, depending on the order of events in each saga, they either trade or get attacked first. Uh, or they get attacked and then tr then trade, which is an interesting sequence, and again not unprecedented for their behavior elsewhere. Uh, but again, they they if it's going to continue to be that contested, and if they are this far from home, you know, with with so little support, I, I think, yeah, they're just overextended. Um, this is not a threat that they can deal with using the strong suits that they could use against, say, the Irish or the, the Anglo-Saxons or the French. Um, let's see, what else What else did I have on this? Uh, one, one of the things that, another thing that sort of stands out, I think, is uh, in the sagas, the journey from Norway to Iceland to Greenland to Vinland, uh, yeah, people get lost, but it, it seems to be pretty easy. Uh, they they don't talk about this as any kind of great hardship. Is that uh, is that just a normal way of Vikings thinking about the ocean? Like, yeah, we 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 sail on this the way people use roads, and it's nothing. Uh, or or is it just an omission from the sagas? Is this me as a landlubber who grew up, you know, about as far as you can get from any ocean, thinking that this is this is weird? Have they got some predictable currents that they're following from Scandinavia to Iceland to Greenland? They refer I, I, to. Oh, go ahead. I, I don't know the. I'm just saying I don't know the the oceanography of that of that chunk of the Atlantic as the, in, in order to answer that. But I mean, the prevailing current is going toward Europe. Mm -hmm. Um, let me look more in more detail. Well, they refer they, a lot. They refer a lot to the wind, either yes. sailing with the wind or against it. Right. Mm -hmm. And they could do both. Well, and, and at one point they do pick up shipwreck survivors. Uh, it seems there's like a, a reef or an atoll that that caught some off guards, and they they rescue these guys. But uh, again, I was just I was surprised by Eric says I'm I'm going sailing today, and I'm going to go to this other place, and then he goes, and then Leaf does the same thing, and and no one no one seems to think that this is a hard thing to do, uh, or <laughs> maybe this is. Maybe getting on a boat and sailing a third of the way around the world is harder than staying home and not doing that. Uh, yeah, it's it's probably just they're used to it, right? Um, and also, I'm reading a ton of John Buchan novels right now, and his narrators like can't sit still. <laughs> sure. Like they get yeah. they get yeah. bored and will make things for themselves to do. Um, so I, I this is interesting. I, I am actually looking at North Atlantic Ocean currents. I knew I knew the Gulf Stream and the North Atlantic Current. Uh, I've forgotten about the Labrador Current, which flows southward between Baffin Island and Greenland into the North Atlantic. So, I mean, when they leave the Western Settlement and head toward Markland and Vinland, they are going with the current, 
which could account for what seems to us like a lot of speed. Right. Yeah. I mean, anyway, like it, I said, that that stood out to me as as someone who has spent zero time on the ocean. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, considering how I mean, Jordan's already talked about how they used ships were their main elements for conducting warfare, but also their main element for conducting trade. They were just they were a traveling people. And, you know, during the seasons of the year that travel was um, was doable and and they weren't needed for agriculture, they, they, they were they were out and doing it. Um, there's also the the you, you get you get the sense that and this this goes back to Scandinavia as well. There's just that spine of mountains in Scandinavia and there's just. Um, land-wise, in terms of arable land, um, there's not a ton of it. So there's always this kind of pressure of population, mm-hmm. which, uh, and the only way to, to, to let off that steam is colonization or conquest. Yeah. Um, and so, so you've got this, this sense that you, you, you've got all these guys up north with time on their hands and pressure to go out and get resources um, by whatever means they can, taking it or buying it. And and so they're accustomed to travel. They're, you know, th- This is the thing that they're used to. And they're always used to looking, and, and they're also, it's why um, free land <laughs> is really interesting to them because there's not a whole lot of that in Norway. Um, you know, when when you can find arable land that isn't already settled, that's better than gold. Yeah. Well, again, the the what if uh, if they had known how big North America really was, right? Given that, mm-hmm. would would things have been different? Also, right? If if they had known, hey, this is a a massive continent, and it's not it's not free, right? There are people who live there, uh, mm-hmm. but still interesting questions. Yeah. Well, D- David mentioning the land in Nor- in uh, Scandinavia generally, but Norway especially, uh, reminded me of something else. Kind of kind of a recent path of investigation has to do with pre-Christian Scandinavia and the practice of polygamy. Mm-hmm. So the wealthy and the powerful, you know, and you run across this in the sagas. They they would sometimes have more than one wife. Very commonly, they would have kind of a primary wife and a lot of concubines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for you know a guy on the rise that leaves not a ton of women available. So you know it's not a it's not the single causal explanation for the Viking Age, but they you know there's been more attention to this paid recently. But it, it occurs to me here because it could also have a, play a factor in why Vinland doesn't last, which is that you know wherever else they go, they show up and they fight whoever's around. And then they settle down not by displacing the local population, but by sort of moving in as kind of crime bosses. Mm-hmm. And within, what's interesting is that within a generation or two, none of their descendants are speaking Norse anymore. In Normandy, they're naming. <laughs> yeah, I mean they, you know, they are given Normandy, and they move in there, and those guys' grandkids are named like Robert, and you know Robert and Guillaume, and they speak French. Uh, and that's because they intermarry and they're kind of absorbed from underneath. Uh, that is not even remotely a possibility in Vinland. There is nobody, you know, you, first of all, there are people there, but 
probably not going to be able to conquer them in these circumstances like we've talked about. And even if you could, they appear to be migratory. So who are you going to, you know, intermarry with, right? It's, 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 you're, you're extending a population to, into a place where you're not going to be able to sustain it unless, like Eric the Red, you can trick people into coming there through, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the name of Greenland is like a great date in the history of marketing, right? Right. So, yeah, I mean, the, the question of why did Iceland stick with Vinland didn't, I mean, it's, it's not just one thing, it's more like 20 things. Yeah. Um, really interesting to think about. Well, anything else you guys want to bring up about the Vikings? We're, we're coming up on our time. Uh, we're we're obviously not done with them. Uh, they're, they're ubiquitous in the Middle Ages. I don't know that there is a topic uh, or a location in the Middle Ages that we could talk about that the Vikings aren't somehow going to show up. Um, even geographically, I don't know. If we're, if we're sticking with Europe, I don't know that there's... I mean, they're in Spain at one point. They're, they're in Greece. Uh, yeah. Uh, but anything else you guys want to bring up in this episode? We've, uh, I think we tipped our hat at it a little bit, but your your question, Coil, of why um, why didn't Vinland stick? Why didn't they think it worth it? If they'd known how big it was, would they have tried harder? Um, these are questions that a lot of a lot of folks a lot of folks have asked for the last few hundred years, and um, so legends, rumors. Um, tall tales of of Vikings going further south and further west um, are something that you'll encounter uh, in in Canada and in the U.S. Uh, and especially in the Plains states, where uh, that that often and often in places that were later settled by Scandinavians, um, and so the discovery of of uh, purported runes and rune stones um, across uh, across America is is a thing. Um, one of the most famous of these is called the Kensington Rune Stone, and um, I would refer uh, I would refer our listeners to uh, Jackson Crawford's uh, long explanation of why the Kensington Rune Stone is not evidence of Vikings in Minnesota. I mean, Sorry, obviously there are Vikings in Minnesota. That there's, <laughs> but not these Vikings. <laughs> right, right. Different kinds of hats. Yes, 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 yes. Um, so the, yeah. So so this 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 is the thing people really really have really really wanted for a really long time there to be more Vikings and more of the New World, um, but the evidence for that is. Uh, just not there um, doesn't mean that they couldn't have but we haven't been, but we haven't found us uh, the, the the evidence for that doesn't doesn't really exist right um, I mean so, if, if we were doing an episode like this on the United States we would talk about that that stretch of time in American history where Americans realized our lack of history through yes. most of our territory and wanted there to be more and yes. were willing to be flexible uh, with reality and evidence in order to build like, their being more yeah like like the idea of the maya the head you know hanging out in south carolina and georgia right you, you can run across that that on the internet yeah I, and we get some fun stories like there there's some great uh novels and short stories written hp lovecraft did some of that 
Um, mm-hmm. Robert Clyde Howard Custer did some. Did the rest. Clyde, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you want to give us any other recommendations, David? Well, since you've uh, you've brought that one up, uh, we'll we'll end with what people can read further. Well, I mean, in this case, it's just going to be it's just going to be watch. Um, you can read the sagas that we're looking at, dear listeners. Um, but uh, three different relevant uh, videos from uh, Jackson Crawford's YouTube channel. Um, the, a, there's a he has a video on the Norse discovery of Canada, which is uh, him him walking through um, a lot of the material we've looked at today um, from, but with his his particular expertise on that um, uh, he has a video on the Kensington runestone and he also has another it's like an hour and a half conversation with a uh, I believe it's a I think he's a Swedish scholar I can't remember he's 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 a scholar of Scandinavian uh, antiquities uh, but he's done a study of all of the purported claims of runic inscriptions that he find in the United States. And there's a lot of them. And he just sort of systematically walks through them and diagnoses the different categories of rune and pseudo-rune and mistake identities and all the rest of it. It's it's really interesting. So if, if, uh, if you just really want there to be more Vikings... Um, the, the, those could be some good videos to maybe give yourself a, if not to disabuse you of belief in American Vikings, um, to at least give you some sense of what threshold of evidence would need to be met. <laughs> I've got one recommendation that's also kind of multimedia. Uh, I, I think one of us name dropped it earlier, but Lonzo Meadows in the very northern end of Newfoundland is uh, the one definitively discovered and identified Norse settlement in North America. There's suspected settlements in a few other places. There's some, if you're interested interested in archaeology, this is a really fun thing to study because there's all sorts of new, like satellite technology they're using to identify stuff. Um, But some of that's still kind of in its infancy. Uh, Lonzo Meadows though was discovered and, and is definitely a Norse settlement, whether it's one of the ones from these sagas is not clear, Uh, but it's been partially reconstructed with longhouses built of turf and that kind of thing. And what's what's fun, because I, th- I think Newfoundland, this particular part of it, in, uh, this specific part of it, is about 18 hours away from anything else I'm likely to do. So I'll probably never go there, which makes me sad. But look it up on Google Maps, look it up on Google Earth, and you can drop your little Street View guy in there and actually walk around the settlement, which is very, very cool. That's awesome. Uh, if you guys are homeschooling, just assign a paper on that to your kids, and then you have to go. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm filing that away for later. Um, well, yeah, when they're old enough to be fun to travel with, not, not. Yeah, yeah there's that. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll rec- I, I'm hesitant to recommend this because it's not very good, but there's a a graphic novel and a movie called Pathfinder, uh, that is trying to tell the story of the Vikings settling from the perspective of the Native Americans uh, who are uh, so resoundingly abused uh, by these Vikings. And the the movie and graphic novel both uh, really, really, really want to be sympathetic uh, to the Native Americans and end up, I think, being the opposite because they uh, 
the, the hero of the story is a Viking who has been kidnapped and raised by Native Americans uh, and then fights off the Vikings by stealing their sword. So even though it really wants to portray the Vikings as the bad guys, uh, you still have at the end of the day the you know, sort of white savior model uh, of the, the Viking having to use Viking stuff to fight Vikings because the Native Americans <laughs> just can't do it. Um, so Vinland Avatar. Yeah, basically. Uh, yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, I had no uh, idea that was based on a graphic novel. Uh, that is, if if you don't watch it for its historical content, uh, I, I can testify. Um, I thought this sounded familiar. This was a lousy movie night. Oh yeah. Like standby when I was at Clemson. So if you want to watch it and MST3K it, uh, it is it is choice. It's it's a terrible. It's it's even a badly made movie. Uh, and. Uh, uh, the graphic novel isn't all that great, but it's about the topic we're talking about. So I don't I don't have any uh, academic sources to recommend. I've everything I've read about this is these two Vinland sagas that we read. So um, that's that's what I've got. All right. Well, thanks guys so much for taking time to uh, to come on and talk about this. Yeah. Thanks. Well, thank you listeners for tuning into the City of Man podcast. The City of Man is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Please check out the other podcasts in our family and get more information about this show or our show notes by visiting christianhumanist.org. Please also leave us a review on iTunes to help other people find our show, like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Podcast, or get in touch with us at cityofmanpodcast at gmail.com. This is Coyle Neal reminding you to render unto Caesar those things that are Caesar's and render unto God those things that are God's. Is there not a white night upon a fiery steed? Late at night I toss and turn and I dream of what I need. I need a hero. I shout out for a hero till the end of the night. I pray he behave, wing it if he Thrill and excite, thrill and excite.